So today we come to the third of four shortest books of the Bible, the second letter um, sent by the Apostle John. Um, And if I say to you the words, the identity of Jesus Christ is under attack, would you say I'm talking about the first century AD or the 21st century AD? You'd be correct to say that I'm talking about both and about every century in between. The identity of Jesus has been under attack since day one and will be under attack until he comes back when no one can challenge him anymore. This is the main reason John sends this letter. He's sending this letter to correct, to encourage, to defend against an attack on Jesus' identity. So how about if we pray together and then get into the letter and see what John is writing to the church. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us to be humble at your word and seek your help to understand it in the way you meant it to be understood and work hard to understand how we apply it to our lives and that we be changed by it so we become more and more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. So it is one reason that he writes this letter. Jesus' identity is under attack. But before he gets into the main reason... He spends half the letter talking about the fact that Christian love and the truth of the gospel cannot be separated. Christian love cannot exist outside the truth of the gospel. Even as early as the greeting. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 1. The elder, so John identifies himself as the elder probably because he's quite elderly at the time, not because he's an elder of the church, uh, to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Now, there's different views about the lady. Is it, was it a real person that he is addressing, or was it a church that he is addressing as the lady? There's good arguments on both sides. We're not going to spend any time on any of them today because it does not affect the content of the letter in any way, shape, or form. But just for the rest of today, I'm going to be referring to his recipients as a church just to make things um, easier. Back to the principle and the idea, the foundation that he is setting before he gets into his main issue. Christian love cannot exist outside the truth of the gospel. To the lady chosen by God and her children, whom I love in the truth. So his love to the church exists in the truth. And not only I, not just him, but other people also love this church. Who are they? All who know the truth. Verse 2, because of the truth, the truth is the reason for what he's going to say next. And what he's saying next, he's, he's praying, he's blessing this church that they might get grace, mercy, and peace, in verse 3, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, 
because of the truth, yes? And these blessings will continue in us in truth and love. So these blessings can only exist only within the truth of the gospel. People can be only um, experiencing grace, mercy, and peace only within the boundaries of the truth of the gospel. Love only exists if it's attached to the truth. Verse 4, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. What gives John uh, joy? To meet some of the members of this church living a life characterized by the truth, the truth of the gospel. Just as the Father commanded us. So here we see the first command that he's talking about. What's the command? Is to walk in the truth, yes? Let's move to verse 5. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. It's not new anymore. It was new when Jesus said it to his disciple in John 14, a new command I give you to love one another. But John is probably writing this letter something like 50 years after Jesus' um, resurrection. So they know this command. He's not telling them something new. He's reminding them of something that they already know. And here we encounter the second command, which is love one another. There's a command to live in the truth and a command to love one another. They are never separate. They, are, they never exist independent of each other. John spends half the letter establishing this principle. Christian love is only love, is genuine love, is true love, only if it sticks to the truth. If it departs from the truth of the gospel, then it's something else. No matter what it looks on the outside, no matter how kind the person is, no matter how friendly the person is, no matter how uh, nice to each other people are, this is not Christian love because it's departed from the truth. He's not talking about general truth. He's not even talking about the whole truth of the Bible. He's talking about something very specific. He doesn't leave us wondering for long. Have a look at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. This is the reason he's writing this letter. People have decided that Jesus is not human. He was not a real person who walked and talked and eaten and fell asleep. They decided to not to acknowledge that. And it's, it's an act of deception. And this is very important to realize. John doesn't call them false teachers. He doesn't call them uh, bad people. He calls them deceivers. And this is very key to understand what's going on. 
because gone out into the world means that these people have not just um, compromised the truth of the identity of Jesus for themselves. They took it upon themselves to start going out and teaching this to others and try and gather a following. But they won't go to the churches and uh, attack them and say, what you're believing is wrong. They actually deceive. They have the appearance of followers of Christ. They use the same vocabulary. They talk probably talk about forgiveness of sin. They talk about um, loving one another. They talk about having a relationship with God. They just keep one bit of the identity of Jesus aside. He was not human. He's God, that's fine. He's the Messiah, that's okay. But he wasn't human. And the deception is very key here because this is why he is saying what these guys are doing is not Christian love. If it's a lie, it is not love. If it detaches from the truth, it's not love. But what's the big deal? You know, they're they're saying all the right things. They're probably uh, being caring and compassionate. They're even self-sacrificial, leaving their families and friends behind and going to these other places to teach. What's the big deal about Jesus not being human? Why is it a big issue that makes John describes them not only as deceivers, but anyone who teaches this is the Antichrist. He doesn't reserve this title to some end-of-time figure. He says that anyone who teaches that Jesus was not fully man, was not fully human, is the Antichrist. Why is it such a big deal? What happens? Maybe, maybe John is exaggerating. Maybe it's just some um, theological, intellectual debate. Well, to answer this question, have a look with me at um, Hebrews chapter 2. This is just one of many, many passages that talk about the humanity of Jesus, fully human, and what it means for Jesus to be fully human. Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 18, the last section of um, the chapter. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, as in Jesus, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. So, here's the first thing. Jesus, like the children, like people who follow him, has flesh and blood, and because of that, the power of death and fear of death is broken. But it's not only this. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants 
And Abraham's descendants are those who have the same kind of faith that Abraham had, but that's another topic for another day. Um, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that, so if he's not human, what's after in order that will not happen, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Being a merciful and faithful high priest means that we have a representative in the presence of God. If Jesus is not fully human, we don't have anyone to represent us in in God's presence. And that he might make atonement, forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is not human, there's no forgiveness of sins for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus is not human, we have no help at the time of temptation. If Jesus is not human, there's no freedom of death and fear of death. There's no um, there's no representation. No one represents us to the Father. There's no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is not human, there's no help in time of temptation and weakness. If Jesus is not human, what's left of the gospel? Nothing much. Not much. This is why John is talking very seriously about this deceptive teaching. If anyone brings this kind of teaching to you, that Jesus was not fully human, they are the deceivers, and that person is the Antichrist. It might sound like an ancient problem that people don't think Jesus is not human. It's actually a problem that many people around us have. Um, The the most obvious example is um, a Muslim person. A Muslim person would find it an abomination to say that God became man because humanity in the Muslim mind is linked to weakness, to uncleanliness. So to say to a Muslim person that God became man is not a stumbling block, it's a stumbling mountain. So if God provides any of you the opportunity to share the gospel with a Muslim person, just be aware of this and know this for a fact, that you need to pray a lot more than uh, debate. You will not convince a Muslim person by arguing the gospel, but the Holy Spirit will. Um, if, you, if you ever get the opportunity to talk to a Muslim person, just be aware that the concept of God becoming man sounds terrible to them. But back to the deceivers at John's time. Why? Why did they decide to uh, get rid of Jesus' humanity? What's wrong with it? What they did was they caved in. They surrendered. 
to the common philosophy, to the common um, uh, human reason of the time. So in the first century, the world was immersed in Greek philosophy. And a a very popular um, idea in Greek philosophy is that there's complete separation between physical stuff, stuff that can be touched and seen and heard, matter, physical matter, on one side, and spiritual stuff on the other side. The spiritual realm is good and pure and great. The physical realm, anything that has a physical appearance that, that can be touched, heard, or seen, is by nature bad beyond redemption. That was the popular reasoning at the time. People found this to be you know, a convincing idea. And the majority believed in that. So these guys looked at the truth of the identity of Jesus, fully God and fully man, and looked at what the world, the society, the human reasoning is telling them. Nothing physical is good. And they noticed that they cannot reconcile them. They cannot put them together. So what did they do? They got a big pair of scissors and cut Jesus Christ in half. Christ, fine. The eternal, promised Messiah, God, great. But the Jesus bit, they just took it and chucked it away. And this is how they managed to relieve the tension. This is how they managed to get rid of the problem by forcing and submitting the truth of the identity of Jesus to the common uh, human reasoning of the day. The same question again. Does this sound like first century or 21st century? I can assure you that today, on Sunday, many have gone out Let me use the exact words. Many have gone out not acknowledging Jesus Christ in his full identity. Maybe back then the problem they had was the humanity of Jesus. Nowadays, people don't have a problem with human Jesus. Many would claim that he is a good teacher, a moral teacher who set a very high standard and Yes, we should follow his standards. But this business about virgin birth and Jesus healing people and raising people from the dead and his own resurrection, you know, this kind of stuff is written for people back then when people used to believe these things. The problem is people who make this claim also make the claim that they are Christian. The same deception still exists. They also make the claim that they are followers of Christ. They don't attack. They don't confront. It's very subtle. They use the same vocabulary. They open up the Bible and somehow twist what's in it to demonstrate that this is what's in there. And we have to be very careful I think it's actually more dangerous nowadays because back then these wandering deceivers had to physically go from town to town 
to, to spread their teaching and gain followers. Nowadays, no one even needs to leave home. We can Zoom everything. We can FaceTime everything. We can YouTube everything. I think the danger is even bigger. And we have to be really careful because deception is subtle. We have to be really careful what we listen to, what we nod in approval for when we listen to teaching. But the best thing to do is really whatever the teaching we're listening to, including the one that you are listening to right now, the best thing to do is to test it against the Bible. If it matches, good. If it doesn't, it is deception. We have to be careful what we listen to, but we also have to be careful when we speak to others. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that we are the same as these deceivers here. But there's a subtle thing that sometimes happens. When we talk about the gospel, many times we'll have a tendency to talk about to talk more about the stuff that the other person will agree with. We talk more about forgiveness. We talk more about love. And we talk less about God's justice and God's holiness. Again, I'm not suggesting that we are in the same group. But we also have to be careful that when we share the gospel, we share it wisely and we pray and we try and speak it in a way that the other person can relate to and understand. That's all good. But we have to be careful not to take one further step by putting aside some of the truth of the gospel so we gain approval from the other person. The the issue of trying to fit the identity of Jesus into the current thinking will always be a problem for people. I am not in any way suggesting that we adopt some kind of blind faith, leap in the dark, no thinking um, acceptance of the gospel. But the warning in Second John here is, is this. Do not try and submit the truth of the gospel to human wisdom. And the reason is human wisdom cha- changes, is changing all the time. The gospel does not. Jesus does not. The... The human reasoning that is very appealing and very convincing in one culture or one stage of history. In a different culture or a different stage of history becomes laughable. It's a really fatal and really bad mistake to take the truth of of who Jesus is, the truth, the eternal truth of God's eternal mind and try and fit it into what society is telling us now. So, no wonder John is very strong in his words. 
anyone who brings this teaching is the Antichrist, deceiver and the Antichrist. This phrase reminds me a bit. It's, the apostles are usually very loving and encouraging people to love one another. They are very compassionate. They are very self-sacrificial. And they encourage people to be the same. Except when it comes to anyone or anything compromising the integrity of the truth of who Jesus is or the truth of the gospel. This sentence, the antichrist or phrase, reminds me, remember when Paul was writing to the Galatians and he said, if anyone brings you a different gospel to what I have um, told you, let them be cursed by God. It's the same thing. If anyone messes with the truth of who Jesus is or the gospel is, that's a very serious matter. And the tone of the apostles changes straight away. Now, that's not the only warning that John gives. He gives them another warning. Um, Go with me to verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this does not bring the teaching of Christ, don't take them into your house or welcome them. So John is telling them, don't offer these people hospitality. Very unusual because in a lot of different places in the New Testament, we are told that hospitality is a good thing. Be hospitable. Be generous to people. John is not saying don't be hospitable in general. He's not even saying don't be hospitable to people who disagree with you on a minor thing. He's specifically talking about these teachers. And this might look like a minor detail. I don't think it is. Because these people... Hospitality back then didn't just mean food and shelter for a couple of days. That's not what he's talking about. These are people who are traveling a lot, and they would stay in every town for many months, even a year or so. Um, We know that Paul stayed in one place for 18 months and then another place for two years. So these teachers would stay in a town for months and months and months. Try and imagine the situation. Offering them hospitality means that you are offering them a lot more than just food and shelter. You're offering, you're introducing them to your friends. This is someone living with you for a year. You're introducing them to your family, extended family. You're introducing them to the community. You're providing them pathways for their um, deception to be successful. Hospitality back then would be the equivalent to um, sponsorship nowadays. You know, when, when companies sponsor a sports person or a sports team and then they do something wrong or say the wrong thing and then they take the sponsorship away because they disagree. Hospitality, to, to be hospitable to, be, to these deceivers back then, would be the equivalent. It would be endorsing and agreeing and encouraging what these people are doing. And that's why he says, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. 
But we don't encounter situations where we have to offer hospitality to anyone in, in this kind of scenario anymore. But the principle is the same. Again, this is a, a letter warning people about the subtlety of deception. Be careful what you facilitate. Be careful what you contribute to. Think well about what you do in terms of making something easier for anyone who is teaching. If the, if the opportunity arises, be careful what you do not to facilitate something that is not compatible with this. John ends the letter um, by telling them that he has a lot more stuff to tell them, but he would rather tell them face to face rather than write it down. And he says that when he meets them face to face, that our joy, and I think he's talking about him and them together, our joy may be complete. Now, we know what, what gives John joy from uh, verse 4. Seeing people living, walking in the truth. So when he sees them face to face, he will experience joy because he will know for sure that they are walking in the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And I think this should give us joy as well in the same way. I think it's a reason to be glad and rejoice that Jesus is fully man and fully God. It's an encouraging truth. Because he is fully man, we find forgiveness, no fear of death, help in temptation, Someone who knows what suffering is so he can help us. And because he is fully God, we no longer have to wonder what God is like. Because when we look at him, we can know God truly as he is. It's a a truth to be embraced and rejoiced. He is fully man and fully God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your mind is beyond testing, is beyond questioning. Your plan in Jesus is beyond what we can humanly understand. So please help us as we think of who Jesus is, as we think of the truth of the gospel, to never make the fatal mistake of trying to subject the plan and the thoughts of the eternal, infinite God to our weak, feeble, finite mind. We pray that you encourage us by the truth that Jesus is fully man and fully God and that we find joy in living and talking to others about this truth. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.